Okay, good morning. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm John Chan, I'm the minister here. Uh, you're very welcome with us on this cold uh, morning. Uh, we've been looking this term at the book of Exodus. So if you've got one of the service sheets, you'll find chapter three, uh, which we looked at in part last week. Uh, but we're coming back to you again uh, one last time this morning. So let's hear God's voice, Exodus chapter three and verse one. It's the story of Moses. Moses has uh, grown up. He's fled from Egypt, uh, having been chased out by Pharaoh. Uh, He's now married with a child and is shepherding the flocks of his father-in-law. So verse one. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked... And behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you uh, that I have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I've observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. 
So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I'll do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I'll give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in a house for silver and gold, jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Let's pray once more. Uh, Lord God, as you spoke to Moses, so you speak to us now. Uh, these words we've read, uh, no less holy, no less powerful than those uh, that came from that burning bush a millennia ago. Uh, and so uh, we say to you with Moses, here we are. And uh, we ask that by the power of your spirit, you enable us to hear and receive what you say with joy. Bless us, therefore, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Who is God? Might seem a strange question to ask in a gathering like this, where I guess for many of us, we'd be able to give something of an answer. Perhaps we go to what he does. Well, God is the one who made everything, who is in charge of everything, who looks after our lives. Some of us have been learning our catechism. God is a spirit uh, whose being, wisdom, power are infinite and eternal. That's the short version. <laughs> uh, some of us uh, might have learned some sort of big words about God. God is the one who is omnipresent. He's everywhere. Uh, God is the one who's all-knowing. Some of us might go to the Trinity. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I suspect however many people there are in the room, however many people there are watching along at home, we'd get different versions of the answer. And for some of us, if we're new to Christianity, not sure quite whether even we believe there is a God, we may be more at the stage of, well, I, I just don't know. <laughs> I think there's someone out there, a spirit in the sky, a force, someone looking down on us. But who is God is the question that is at the heart of Exodus chapter 3. It's the question really that Moses is asking in verse 13, he kind of passes the buck a little bit. If, if I go back to, to the Israelites and say that I've come to rescue you, what God has sent me? When they ask me, uh, who is God? What is his name? What, what shall I say? Now, it's not entirely clear why Moses is asking. It, it may be, it may be that, that he has forgotten God's name. He grew up in, in the palace of Pharaoh. So maybe he, he just doesn't really know. He genuinely doesn't know. And he needs to know the name that the Israelites know, almost like a password. So when they say, well, who are you to come and rescue us? He'll know the right name. Could be. It could be that actually Israel itself, okay, the nation, the people, have forgotten their God. And so when Moses asks, who are you? He's wanting to know not just a, a name, your name's James or Tom or Sarah. But, but, but what are you like? It's not altogether clear why Moses needs to ask God's name. But ask God's name, he does. And what's important to note is that in the Bible, names reveal natures. Now, for us, when you were born, your mom or your dad, whatever, chose a name that they kind of liked. But it doesn't make much difference, does it? If you're called Sarah... Uh, it, it makes no difference to, to who you are if you change your name by Dean Polt or Emma or whatever. Uh, some of you will know that my real name is James. Um, but since I was about 12, people called me Johnty. In fact, I've been, I've been going out with my wife for a few months before it occurred to me that I hadn't actually told her my real name was James. 
Uh, so we're walking along a road one day, and I said to her, oh, by the way, I probably ought to tell you, my real name is James. Now, that's a bit of a surprise. Okay, and sort of, anything else you haven't told me that you need to? But it didn't change anything fundamentally. But, but God's names, in particular in the Bible, tell us what he is like. And so if you read through the Bible, God has all sorts of names. Sometimes he's, he's El Shaddai, God Almighty. Uh, sometimes he's El Olam, the God who's everlasting. Jehovah Jireh is one that often goes on Christian posters. The God who provides. Uh, but here in Exodus 3, God gives two answers to Moses. The first we looked at last week. The first, if you look down, uh, is there in verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. But the first answer is, I am, God says. Now we thought about that last week, so I'm not, I'm not going to go over it again. It's all to do with God saying, I I." I am the foundation of everything else. I don't need anybody. I don't need anything. I am self-sufficient. Uh, the, the, the fire in the bush wasn't burning. The bush, was it? But it didn't need the, the, the wood of the bush to burn. The flame just burned itself. And the flame is a picture of God. And we thought last week, well, it's good news that God just doesn't need you. Does that sounds strange? I'm not going to explain. <laughs> you have to go back and listen on YouTube. Okay, God doesn't need you. He just is. He is happy. He is blessed. He is God. But God gives a second answer. And that's our focus this morning. Uh, The second answer is in verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I'm to be remembered through all generations. God moves on and says, look, here's a second name. And the second name is the Lord. See that verse 15, the Lord. Now we have God's personal name. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? When you you get to call someone by their first name, perhaps a boss at work, somebody you've always looked up to, a teacher at school, and you go back years later, and, oh, don't call, you don't need to call me Mr. Stevens anymore. No, it's Jeff. We're friends now. Here, God gives his personal name to his people. That's an amazing privilege. Uh, this name, it's Yahweh, we'll come back to that, Yahweh. This isn't a name known by other people. Pharaoh doesn't know this. Pharaoh calls God God, El. But, but, but he, doesn't, he doesn't call God Yahweh. He doesn't know God as Yahweh, the Lord, as it's translated here. Uh, we as Christians, we know God, as we've thought about already actually, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is an incredible privilege that we can call God Father. That is his personal name. It's not a, a title. It's how he's revealed himself. Think of the end of Matthew's Gospel. We're baptised in the name. Well, what, what name? What is the name of God? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One name. Notice, not three. Again, we'll think about that this evening. But we can come call God Father. We know Jesus, the Son, our elder brother. We know the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can sometimes feel less personal because the Holy Spirit is not like Father and Son. It's not family language, is it? But, it, but, but he is no less personal. He, he, he dwells within us. It's a wonderful thing, an intimate thing, that God reveals his personal name to his people. 
A tremendous privilege to know God, a sign of his love already. But this name in in verse 15, uh, unfortunately, we need to do a bit of clearing. If you've got a garden, maybe you buy a new house, uh, and the garden's just covered in weeds and brambles and and tangles. And before you can plant your tulips and roses, you've got to to sweep away some, some of the rubble. And that's what he's doing here, unfortunately. Over the years, a lot of confusion has grown up over the answer in verse 15. Uh, in our version, this is the ESV, the English Standard Version, the, the version we use. It translated as the Lord. Literally, what, it, what is there it is this name Yahweh, just four letters in Hebrew, roughly like our YHWH, or VH, depending on how you pronounce things. Four letters, Yahweh. And yet, the, the, the ESV translates it along, alongside lots of versions as the Lord. Now, it's, it's not the word meaning the Lord. There's a perfectly good Hebrew word for Lord, but that's not it. And Yahweh does not mean Lord. It's not a translation thing going on here at all, in fact. Uh, What happened is that at some point in in the history of God's people of Israel, uh, many, many years after the Exodus, hundreds of years after the Exodus, uh, they started getting worried, skittish, about pronouncing God's name, his personal name, this intimate name they were given, Yahweh. Uh, perhaps in part driven by a, a desire not to break that third commandment, do not misuse the name of the Lord. Uh, every time they were reading the scriptures, okay, the Old Testament scriptures, and they got to Yahweh, which comes some 6,000 times in the Old Testament, instead of saying his name in case they misused it, they would say, Lord. The Hebrew word, which is Adonai, uh, the Hebrew word for Lord. And, and so that just sort of got... got stuck into the Jewish mind, as it were. When they translated their Old Testament, written in the Hebrew, into Greek, uh, they wrote in the Greek word for Lord, curious. But but the name is Yahweh. Uh, Just to add one further bit of kind of confusion to an already confusing story, uh, Hebrew doesn't have vowels, at least not initially. Maybe just Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. I'm putting in vowels because you can't say it without them, can you? But they didn't write the vowels. And so these, the scribes, when years and years, centuries after Moses, they decided, well, actually, it'd be useful to have some hints about the vowels. But they, they put in a series of what looked like kind of commas and apostrophes to us. But remember, they didn't want to say God's name. So what they put in was the vowels of the word for Lord, Adonai. Now, why do you need to know that? It's not a kind of grammar. We don't need grammar lessons very often on Sunday mornings. That, that's not the point. Uh, the reason it's worth knowing that is because really centuries later, when, when the first Bibles were translated into English in sort of 16th century, uh, the people who, who were doing it, who'd finally learned how to read Hebrew and Greek properly, uh, looked at it and saw that the letters, okay, the consonants, Y-H-W-H from Yahweh, God's name, but they also saw the vowels from Adonai, and they didn't know that that was the, the Jews trying to sort of not say God's name. And so they combined the two and translated it as Jehovah. Okay, so Jehovah is stealing the vowels from one word, Adonai, Lord, and the consonants from God's name and mashing them together. So it's a bit like our assistant minister who just led the service, Zachary. Okay, and imagine we decided that Zachary is such a holy guy. We don't want to misuse his name. We've got such reverence for him. We, we don't even say his name. And so every time you know, his name comes up, instead of saying Zachary, we say minister. Okay? He's too reverent to address him. We say minister. And then centuries later, when someone's writing the history of Christchurch Central, 
Okay? They get confused and take the, 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 sort of the, the consonants of Zachary and the I's and E's out of minister and say, oh, his name must, must have been Zikire, or something, you know, combining the two together. And so suddenly Zikire becomes this great figure in Christchurch Central's history. Well, well, that's where Jehovah comes from. The reason that's worth knowing is that every now and again, two very polite people will knock on your door and ask you if you believe in God and tell you that the only people who are going to heaven are those who know that God's real name is Jehovah. That's what you've got to call him, Jehovah. Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah is the one thing we know God is not called because it's a massive spelling mistake, essentially. God is not here Lord, nor is he Jehovah. He is Yahweh. That is his special name. And that is the name that he gives to his people. What does it mean? That's an interesting history lesson, or a very boring history lesson, maybe. But what does it mean? Why does he call himself Yahweh? Honest answer? No one knows exactly. Thousands of years of people reflecting on this passage, Jews and Christians. No one knows exactly what it means. It, it, It sounds a bit like the verb to be, I am. You can't do it in English. It sounds like the sound of Yahweh is a bit like the Hebrew word to be. So it's a bit like God is saying his name is be am or something like that. You know, bits of the verb to be stuck together. It's something like that. But that's not quite it. I mean, it's definitely meant to echo his first answer, I am who I am. But it's not just repeating it. No, this is his personal name. And really what God is doing here is tying this name, Yahweh, to what he says next. Verse 15, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. What God is doing in this passage is saying, if you want to know who I am, well, here's my name, Yahweh, it's my personal name. But if you want to know what that means you're going to have to follow this whole story. Uh, The whole story of how I treat Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and in fact, how I'm going to treat you, their descendants. No one name, in other words, can sum me up, says God. Remember, names aren't just sort of Tom, Dick, Harry. They're, They're telling of character. No one name will do it. In a sense, it's like sorry, God gives Moses a blank exercise book and writes Yahweh at the top of the first page and says, if you want to know what that means, just watch me fill up the book over the next hundreds and thousands of years. It is the story that will reveal my name. Yahweh is my personal name. I'm giving to you, my people, and you'll only understand what it means as you watch what I do, as you watch how I treat you. You can do that in part by looking backwards. In Moses' time, there's not a lot to look back on, just Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob but in part by looking forward too. If you've, uh, if you've read, or I guess more likely for many of us, watched uh, the Lord of the Rings stories, there's a character there called Treebeard, who essentially, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, I'm sure I'm about to commit a thousand Lord of the Rings heresies, apologies, but to the average person, he's basically a big talking tree. Okay? At one point... He's called Treebeard in the, in the book. But at one point, one of the little um, hobbits uh, says, to, says to him, what's your name? 
And Treebeard says this. I'm not going to tell you my name. Not yet, at any rate. For one thing, it would take a long while. My name is growing all the time. And I've lived a very long, long time. So my name is like a story. Real names tell you the story of things they belong to in my language. That's exactly what's going on here with Yahweh. But my, my name is like a story. Yahweh says, to, to understand who I am, to understand, understand what God is like. You can't really get it in a name, in a word. You can't sum it up in a catechism. Yes, God is a, a being, a spirit. He's being wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness and truth. They're infinite, eternal, unchangeable. See, I do know the whole thing. <laughs> that, that is all true. That doesn't summarise him. It's good to learn those things. But that, that's hardly sufficient. Oh, good, I've got God, God wrapped up now. You know, I, I can, you know, if I'm a, a biologist, I, can, I, I understand what, I don't know, what a carrot is. I can, work, I can tell you all about it. I can study them and, and, okay, there I am, I've got it. You can't do that with God. No, we need to see this story unfold. And Yahweh ties his name to the story. 6,828 more times, actually 6,827 more times, uh, God will use this name Yahweh in the Old Testament. And in a sense, we need all of them, every page of that exercise book, if we were to understand what he's actually like. Uh, even in Exodus, about a dozen times, God will say something like, then you'll know that I am the Lord when, dot, 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 you know, when I turn the Nile to blood, when I strike down the firstborn, when I rescue you out of Egypt, when you gather at this mountain, when I come and live in the, in the tabernacle. If you want to know what Yahweh is, says God, who I am, you'll need to see all these things. And each of my actions will tell you something else about me. Every time in the Old Testament you read Lord in those sort of funny capitals, it hasn't quite come out in our service sheets, but sometimes you'll see in your Bible, it's Lord, but it's written in those sort of small capital letters. It will be Yahweh underneath. And it's another page in that story. God is telling you something else about who he is. That's the good news for us this morning. It is God's actions, particularly his saving actions, that tell us what he's like. In other words, but in more New Testament language, it is the gospel that reveals the character of God, his name, his nature, who he really is. There is not another God, cold, distant, disinterested, hiding behind the good news of the gospel. Oh, I think that's something we, we can fear. It's something I think I feared subconsciously at least at, at times. We know the gospel and it can become quite mechanistic, can't it? We learn two ways to live or we learn the bridge diagram or we learn some way of explaining the gospel. And it's all about how you as a sinner get forgiven and can get, go to heaven. The, the mechanism is the cross. Jesus, God's son, comes down, dies on the cross and pays. And it can all just be a bit, well, just a bit of a mechanism, a recipe to, to get you... Get, get you home. It is the plan God put into place to get you home. But why did he do it? Okay, that's how it happened, but why? See, the point is, the gospel is revealing God's character, 
He never acts out of character. And so the, the, the why question is so important with the gospel. Because, because it shows us what he is like. The gospel shows us his love in rescuing us. It shows us his power in rescuing us. It shows us the God for whom we've been rescued and to whom we've been rescued. Uh, throughout this passage, uh, you'll see on two occasions, God says that when I rescue my people, I'm going to take them to this land. Now, for Moses and the Israelites, it was a land in the Middle East. Okay, it's a land at the moment that's got these seven nations living in it, the Amorites and Perizzites and Hittites. And I think the idea is it's, it's a big land. They're all there at the moment. We're going to come back to them because it'll be another story when Moses actually goes in, or actually Moses doesn't go in, when the Israelites go in and drive them out. But there's this beautiful land flowing with milk and honey. Milk is, and honey are meant to be the kind of the best things you can have. So milk is the kind of cream, the, the best thing you can have if you're into, um, if you farm animals. Okay, and honey is, honey here isn't from the bees. It's not like there's going to be loads of bees in Canaan. Um, it's, 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 the idea is it comes from the kind of figs and the grapes. It's the kind of sweet juices and the, it's the best of agriculture, in other words. A land flowing with milk and honey. It's the best place you can imagine, God says. That's where I'm taking you to. But he's taking them there so that they can be his people. You'll know me by what I do. We just get three glimpses. I just want to touch on these before we close it. Three glimpses here of what God is going to do that reveals something of his character to us. But first, he's going to bind himself to people. He's going to bind himself to people. Now, we saw this already a little bit in the, the story of the burning bush. Remember, the fire represents God. But, but the fire wasn't next to the bush. It wasn't above the bush. The fire was in the bush, i.e. God is down here among us. The bush represents his people. God is binding himself, coming down. Although he doesn't need his people, he's going to come down to be with them. That is why he calls himself, in verse 15, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of all people. God doesn't say there, look, I'm the God of everybody, Pharaoh, Abimelech. No, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He makes these promises. They're called covenants in the Bible. Covenants is God's word for his, the Bible's word for his relationship with his people. And I'm binding myself to a particular people. I am going to be with my people. As that sort of firework shoots through the pages of the Old Testament and we get to the new, what, what do we see? We see God come down to be with his people. Jesus, who we call Emmanuel, God with us. He is a God, although he doesn't need his people, he desires to be with them and them with him. Don't doubt that God wants to know you. Uh, don't, don't think that he is distant and you are an inconvenience or a, a hassle, a frustration, a disappointment. No, God wants to be with you. If you are one of his people, you put your trusting in Christ, being baptised into his name. He wants to be with you. Again, we just see a little glimpse of the character of God, his grace, his love, his generosity. 
doesn't need, he's not gaining anything, remember? But he wants to know you, wants to be with you. When Jesus comes, uh, John calls him the Word. He is showing us what God is like, the Word of God. And so when you look at Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, you are truly seeing what God is like. Yes, he's become man, but you're really seeing the character of God. There's no tension or difference between the character of Jesus and the character of God. And Jesus came to be with people, didn't he? He sat with tax collectors and prostitutes. What is the worst thing you've done? The thing that makes you just shiver when you think about it. My friend texted me this week in, in ministry, in fact. Um, uh, you know, I, I think a great minister, who none of you will know, <laughs> great preacher, and it, it just racked with guilt because of things he had done in the past. I mean, decades ago. God's character, as we see it in Jesus, moves towards people like that, not from them. Burningly holy in this bush, and yet coming and having dis- dinner with prostitutes. Whores. Traitors, in the case of tax collectors. Those who exploit the weak and the vulnerable, the loan sharks, and Jesus goes to them. He comes to you this morning and says, if you want to know what I am like, I am a God who wants to be with you, person. Not just with you, but he's a God who cares about you. Do you see this in verse 7? The, the, the people of God have been suffering awfully, 400 years of slavery. They might begin to think maybe God doesn't care, but look, the Lord said, I've seen, surely, the affliction, the suffering of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry. It's there again in verse 9. Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. It's there in verse 16. I've observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. Because God has come to you and knows you, he knows your suffering, and he hears you. He may not act in the ways you're asking him to quickly 400 years of slavery remember but he does hear and he does know he sees how you're being mistreated he sees how you're suffering he knows what you're going through and he cares because you are his people you have his personal name on you again as the story unfolds what do we see Jesus we see Jesus the son of God come down and he's called the man of sorrows He weeps and mourns. He doesn't just sit up in heaven, as it were, if I can dare put it like this, and say, there, there, I'm sorry. He walks among us. He experiences the same suffering we do. Weeps the same tears. Bleeds the same blood. If you are in the valley at the moment, God knows and he cares Mysteriously, he may not be pulling you out of the valley to the mountaintops just yet, but he does care. And again, that is part of his nature. Not something he's been forced to do, but something he wants to do, something that shows his character. And then he conquers. See verse 8. 
when he hears about the suffering, I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egypts and to bring them to this land. God is a God of power. He will rescue. He will pull his people out of their suffering, out of their sin, out of their misery, and take them to the promised land. For us, ultimately, well, heaven. Or even better than that, when Christ returns, a whole new cosmos, a whole new earth, new heavens, a new earth, a physical world renewed. Okay, never mind milk and honey. The, the best things you can imagine. The world will be spotless and beautiful beyond measure. I would get perhaps a little bit of a clue right at the end of our passage as, as to what it will be like. Do you see this strange thing that in verse 21 and 22 that when the Israelites are, are out of Egypt finally, they take with them. Well, what do they take with them? Do you see? Well, you won't go empty-handed, says God. Everyone will ask their neighbour and anyone who lives in their house, you know, Egyptian lodgers or whatever, for silver and gold and clothing, and they'll be loaded up, plundering the Egyptians in the snow. The, the best, the wealth of Egypt, its oppressive power, will be taken into the new world. Maybe a hint, maybe just a hint, it's a theme that comes up a few times throughout the Bible, maybe just a hint that actually the, the greatest things in this earth the greatest products, I don't know, the greatest works of art or the greatest people, whatever it may be, actually end up in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, either way, that world will be wonderful, God said. I have the power to deliver you out of this world and into the next. Uh, to do so, he will need to smash the enemies. Again, this is something we'll come back to in Exodus. The gospel, that the rescue does reveal God's power. Okay. Pharaoh is going to need a mighty hand in verse 19 to, to force him. God in verse 20 wanted to strike, hit the Egyptians with the miracles to, to let, uh, to force them to let God's people go. God's power is revealed in his rescue. And therefore, God, God in the gospel is terrifying if, if we're not on his side, if we don't come to him asking for mercy. He will destroy all that stands against him and his people. If you're part of his people, that means no enemy will prevent you getting into heaven. And not just the enemies out there who, who persecute you. I suppose on the whole, we're ready to be free of persecution at the moment. Although if we're in Myanmar or North Korea, Afghanistan, as we were praying on Wednesday, that would be very obvious where our enemies were. But even the things that enslave us are sin, Satan. Even though some of those things are our fault, they're our sin, aren't they? Those things can't stop God. He will smash them. His power will destroy. And again, in Jesus, God with us, that's what we see, don't we? He, he comes down because he comes to us, his people. He identifies so closely that he takes our sin on his shoulders. Uh, he says, give it all to me, all your enemies, everything that can stop you entering heaven. And put it on my shoulders. All those things you're ashamed of, all those things that crush you with guilt on me, he says, give them. He looks at the prostitute in the eye and says, give me your sexual sin. He looks at the tax collector, these traitors in the eye, and says, give me your oppression and injustice. Give me all your exploiting of the poor. Put it on my shoulders. And then he goes to the cross and he defeats them. All God's wrath is poured on them. And therefore the power of sin is destroyed. The one thing that could stop you entering heaven, God. Because his power has been exercised in love for his people. If you come to him, God's power is good news for you. If you stand against him, it's terrifying. 
But everything is for you if God's name is yours. Even his might, his power, his striking and smashing is good news because he's smashing your enemies. Sin and Satan and death itself in the cross and resurrection. Who is God? The gospel shows us. That's why we need the scriptures. We need all these 6,828 references to Yahweh to see what he's like. And that's before we even get to the New Testament and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus, his name. That's why we mustn't cherry pick the scriptures. There will be things about God that he's revealed himself in the gospel and in his word that at times you don't like. But the problem there is not with God, but with you, with me. When God makes you uncomfortable, the problem is in our hearts, our minds. It happens to all of us. There are parts of the Bible we struggle with. But you see here, it is God who tells his people who he is, not the other way around. It's not for us to say, well, a God of love would never dot, dot, dot. Or I like to think that God is, or I can't believe God would ever. No, we put our hands over our mouths. Hard when you're preaching. (laughs) Put your hand over your mouth and you listen to all that God has said in every word, from the first word of Genesis to the last of Revelation, from the in the beginning to the amen, come Lord Jesus, come, amen. All of them reveal who God is. But ultimately you look to Christ, who comes to us in, in Calvin's words, clothed in the gospel. That is God's greatest act. You look at Jesus, God with us, in the gospel, and you see a God who is well, a God who is with us, a God who knows us and hears us, and a God of such power that he will stop every obstacle to bring you home. That is who God is, a God who loves you, a God who has conquered, and a God who will bring you safely home. Let's pray. Our Father God, we come to you in the name of Jesus, empowered by your spirit, and we pray that you would open our eyes, uh, that we might know you. I thank you that you have taken the initiative, you have come down, you've spoken to Moses, and even more, you've spoken uh, to us uh, in Jesus, the word. Uh, We pray that we wouldn't harden our hearts to any word, uh, not a single sentence of scripture. Uh, We pray uh, that by the power of your spirit, uh, we'd have our eyes open to see more clearly what it means, what your name is, to know your character. Uh, Lord, we believe, but help us overcome our unbelief. And particularly, we pray this week that whatever comes uh, towards us, however downcast we may feel in heart or mind or soul or spirit, uh, we pray that we would look and see Jesus clothed in the gospel. I know your goodness to us. Bless us, therefore, we pray in our Saviour's name. Amen.